0: I am willing to wager twenty thousand pounds that I will make a tour of the world in eighty days or less. You accept? Accept. I accept. accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eighty Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Syria in the UK.
2: And Joe Byrne in Galway,
1: Ireland. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about the only walled city north of Mexico in the American continent, Quebec City. Capital city of Canada's Quebec province, the city is located on the Saint Lawrence River, around 500 kilometers from the eastern coast of Canada and around 700 kilometers northeast of New York City. Founded in July 1608 by Samuel de Champlain, a French explorer, Quebec City originated as Stadacona, a Iroquois Native American settlement before the arrival of Europeans. A base for French exploration and colonization of what would become New France, Quebec remains a hub of French-Canadian culture and history, with French serving its primary language as throughout the wider province of Quebec. In 1775, American troops led by Benedict Arnold attempted to invade and take over Quebec City in the Battle of Quebec to liberate the region from the British. The siege was unsuccessful, however, and Quebec did not become the 14th American colony, Instead, it remained under British rule until Canada became its own country in 1867. Today, the city is home to just over half a million residents, making it the 11th largest city in Canada, similar in urban population to Albuquerque, New Mexico or Dublin, Ireland. The city's curious name was taken from the native term for Where the River Narrows after its location on the banks of the St. Lawrence River. Let's start out as we usually do with some foreshadowing as to what we're going to talk about in this episode. Joe, do you want to kick off with something you're looking forward to telling us about today?
2: Oui. Uh, I would like to ask you, what do Hillary Clinton, Madonna, and Angelina Jolie have in common with two-thirds of French Canadians? Go on. And for the answer, you'll have to wait till the uh, mid-1600s. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, any, any guesses? No.
1: I am assuming it has something to do with Quebec City. Uh, they once visited Quebec City or something. Yes, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Is it? Okay. No. Wow. All right. Okay. No. No. Well, I mean maybe spoiler alert. Sure. I've been very disappointed <laughs> in many of them are. All right. <laughs> Uh, mine is uh, a phrase that I came across. Uh, I'm, I'm going to speak to it uh, a little bit later, but a, a phrase that I came across. I don't know if either of you guys have ever heard of this. Mark, you might because you're married to a Canadian. It's uh, a, apparently a French phrase says, as uh, as false as Canadian diamonds. Have You ever heard of this before? No no uh oh
2: i i came across that one too i think it's a french
1: yeah it's a french it's a french phrase yeah more
2: than a more than a canadian phrase
1: because obviously it's kind of ragging i don't i don't think the canadians would appreciate it but yeah we're going to talk about where that comes from later on yeah it's a good story mark what about you
3: i am looking forward to talking about a fail-off uh two military leaders uh both both failing aggressively at each other uh trying to see who will fail slightly less
1: Failing slightly win. more upwards. Yes, <laughs> okay. exactly.
2: It it is a nice kind of lens to view Canadian history through, though uh, Quebec City, because like it's not what you think of when when we Europeans think of Canada. You kind of think of English speaking Canada, mm. and um, I don't know. It's it's it kind of is a great example of how weird the history of Canada was and how it all got knitted into a country. Kind of just because things were near each other.
1: That's how countries tend to tend to start, I guess. I,
2: th- I think also yeah.
1: Montreal is is a much more
3: culturally dominant force in modern Canada as well. Montreal is like a properly mm. big city. It's 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 Montreal, Toronto, and kind of Vancouver are the biggies, and Quebec's kind of forgotten yeah. a little
1: bit. Okay. Uh, So, Mark, do you want to tell us how uh, this whole place got started?
3: Yes. So uh, talking first about kind of the geological uh, structure of the place, uh, it's at, as you said, it's on the the St. Lawrence River. uh, And it's a bit of a a a confluence of little islands and stuff like that. Uh, And actually, geologically, apparently it's split into uh, three distinct zones. One of which is the uh, Appalachians, which, um, if you know that name, it's in relation to kind of the the huge mountain range in the east of the United States. But actually, the kind of geological formation of the Appalachians stretches all the way up to pretty much Quebec City. Anyway, so you have the Appalachian bit. Uh, There's also a bit called the St. Lawrence Platform, which is just to the north of Quebec City. And that consists of sedimentary rock, such as sandstone and limestone. uh, And it's frequently, and this is a new word on me, fossiliferous, as in it's, you know, loaded with fossils. But that's that's the term for that. Fossiliferous. Marine fossils in particular. Cool. So last section is the Laurentian. So as in relating to St. Lawrence River. Uh, And that is lots and lots of igneous, or as my secondary school textbook said, fire formed rock, basically anything that's been kind of stuck underground for years Mm. and years and years and and cooked. There's Grenville rocks uh, representing the deep roots of an old mountain chain, which are, are under Quebec, which apparently would have been as high as the Himalayas in their day. Anyway, the people we're talking about are the Iroquois or the, I, b- I believe the term that they would have for themselves is the Haudenosaunee. In both terms are quite broad umbrella terms for, you know, a, a whole both kind of historical and present group of tribes, cultures, etc. So th- these are kind of quite broad brushstroke terms. So
2: I- Iroquois is a language group. Uh, right? I mean,
3: generally speaking, it's it's either going to be a language group or... Uh, when you're looking at the kind of the archaeological uh, records, it's kind of what did their pottery look like or what did, what did their behaviours look like? But, you know, all of
2: this stuff is kind mm. of retrospective. But, I mean, is it kind of as, as useful as saying Germanic and meaning everyone from the Netherlands to Switzerland? I mean,
3: it's it's kind of hard to say in this case because I mean, we'll, we'll get to it in a little bit, but the we're specifically talking about the St. Lawrence Iroquois here and... Um, they, they kind of vanished, okay. so it's, it's a bit hard to say what their language structure would have been. Probably would be my answer, but uh, we, we can't ask them because they're not there. Um, but uh, that, that's flashing forward a little bit. Going back again, uh, the earliest human occupation of the general area was about 10,000 years ago, with the arrival of uh, early nomadic hunters. Uh, they had descended from the people who had crossed the Bering Strait land bridge, uh, as is the case with everybody uh, indigenous to the Americas. And when they arrived in Quebec, the glaciers had just receded, and plants and animals were newly flourishing. So it was a really good time to arrive. Uh, trade networks were uh, also established over time, and this subgroup were based on the banks of the Saint Lawrence River, uh, named after this huge, huge, huge river, which goes all the way from kind of the the you know inlets off the Atlantic. To the Great Lakes. So it's this massively navigable, very, very deep, very, very wide river, um, which you know, afforded them the ability to actually go mm. towards the coast as well, as, as we'll see in a bit. There is a general view that the St. Lawrence Iroquois, as a coherent grouping kind of in and of their own right, emerged around AD 500 uh, based on a number of factors, um, how they used the land. How they, how they settled subsistence patterns uh, what they ate social organization ceramic styles etc. But the, you know, generally speaking, 500 AD is a pretty pretty good starting point. Uh, and around the year 1000 uh, they move further up the river they also move into modern day New York um, bearing in mind there, there wasn't a national border there so there were free to roam as they liked and um, even though there were Vikings um, in the area probably around around that time uh, exploring the Atlantic coastline there's no evidence that they made it uh, up the St Lawrence River as far as where the Haudenosaunee were. Um, Between 1200 and 1350, some of the Iroquois from the Quebec City area temporarily left their villages and they started kind of migrating towards the coast, towards the estuary of the St. Lawrence River during the latter half of winter. This was uh, basically so they could kind of extend their hunting season and they were able to fish for salmon and hunt harbour seals. And they would seasonally share the territory with another group called the Inu who would move to the coast in the summertime but they would move inland and and uh, and hunt as well. So they were kind of cycling through this area with another grouping called the Inu which apparently is extremely rare. There, there wasn't kind of territorial clashes between the two uh, or at least none that were recorded. Archaeological data suggests that this this St. Lawrence uh, Iroquois were, were distinct from the Huron Wendat and the Five Nations Iroquois. When you hear about the, the Iroquois it's, it, it's normally in relation to the Five Nations um, who have I think some mm. pretty well known constituents? Who became a really big
2: military? Yes, they
3: they were a really big military factor uh, later on. I think particularly during the Seven Years' War. Other other things that are kind of slightly distinctive of this of this group and of this time was a scarcity of use of stone tools. Um, not really known why, but they seem to favor bone. Over stone, and uh, there's a you know great breadth of, of really interesting tools that were created and, and recovered from from various sites in the area. The Saint Lawrence Iroquois, uh, as they became more sedentary, less mobile, and, and probably more involved in agriculture, had a reduced need for stone as well. So, uh, tools normally used in hunting and, and butchering activities uh, probably weren't weren't used as much. Uh, and you know al- also bone is is kind of lighter; it's it maybe easier to work with. So maybe they preferred it for that reason as well. Um, and then one of the last things i'm going to mention is just kind of choosing a site for a village because this was one of these things that was preserved as a decision for for the elders uh, and they would surround their villages with wooden wooden palisades for protection um, these villages were semi-permanent so they, you know, they would move around every now and then kind of every 10 to 20 years uh, and they used long houses uh, divided into apartments for each family but uh, each long house could could house up to 50 people i'm going to Put a put a pin in it there, but I think that is it yourself, Luke, who's going to talk about the um first introduction of the uh, Saint Lawrence Iroquois to to the Western world. Yeah.
1: So uh, yeah, the 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 first pivotal person to know in the story is a guy called Jacques Cartier, who was born in uh, fourteen ninety one in Saint Malo, France. Uh, although I believe it, it wasn't a part of 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 France at the time, uh, but it, it is today. Um, and he had explored around, uh, sailed around a, co- a couple of different um, North American locations. He'd, he'd spent a little bit of time in Newfoundland and he was uh, commissioned by King Francis I in 1534 to, quote, voyage to that realm of the new world to discover certain isles and countries where it is said there there must be great quantities of gold and other riches. Guys. And, uh, yeah, so straight up um, very obvious what the goal was here. But
3: him, him also saying certain islands and countries shows how, how little they knew. He's <laughs> like, discover yeah. many things, things that we have not found. But mostly are my things there. that are found.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. The, he so brought the, back
2: loads of corn. Went, Look, it's yellow.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a, a secondary consideration to discover the Northwest Passage and a route to Asia. Again, uh-huh. probably... probably uh, Easily done. Motivated by, by trade there. But yes, exactly. Yeah, but... Uh, It seems like the first priority here was uh, great quantities of gold and other riches. Uh, On his first voyage, he entered the St. Lawrence Seaway, uh, rounding Newfoundland and stopped off at an island where his crew shot a number of birds and also spotted a polar bear swimming offshore as large as any cow and as white as any swan. And they (laughs) killed it and found its meat very tender (laughs) and similar to that of a young cow. That's,
2: That's kind of upsetting. Uh, uh, yeah, w- w- worth worth checking out our episode in Newfoundland if uh, you yes. if you if you're, if you're enjoying yes, the neck of the woods, very different history, um, very different by. history.
1: Yeah, exactly. So they next rounded Labrador, entered a large Gulf, which we know today as the Gulf of Saint Lawrence, and as he he and his crew made their way up the Saint Lawrence River. Cartier began pointing at things and naming them uh, as you do as an explorer. <laughs> Sounds like a world-beater this guy. Uh, and he also claimed possession for France by uh, a system of erecting large crosses with fleur-de-lis on them.
2: Mm, that'll uh, do it. Right.
1: Yep. Uh, and though, although he found plenty of good harbours, Cartier didn't think uh, the land very useful, uh, saying, In all the north land, I did not see a cartload of good earth. To be short, I believe that this was a land that God allotted to Cain, uh, who who murdered oh, his geez. brother. Right. So yeah, but uh, a bit harsh. Yeah, I believe I, I believe that was kind of um around the mouth of the Saint Lawrence. So I think I think he became fonder of of the places that he came across as he as he <laughs> okay. moved up the river. As he pointed at them. Yeah, he
3: pointed at some good land that day. What a day!
1: On July sixteenth, uh, Cartier sailed into another hospitable bay, now called Gasp Bay. And uh, the following month, he had his first encounter with the natives of the Micmac tribe, and he uh, traded a little bit with them. And shortly after near Gaspe, he first made contact with Donnacona's group, who were on a fishing expedition from uh, Statacona. So, <gasps> Stata yeah, uh, Donnacona is is a is a leader of the uh, Iroquois, and um, his his base, uh, for all intents and purposes, that we're going to be talking about is Statacona, which would later go on to become Quebec City.
2: So it it's this. We possibly haven't really said it, but it's a very distinctive looking bit of land. It was a big, mm. There's a big... There's a big... Big rock. Promontory and there's... Overlooking it's the river. at the point where the river is, is narrow. So there's lots of reasons this is where you would... Anyone yeah. would choose to set up a city if you're in the business of having cities in an area. Mm-hmm.
1: And being able to defend them, more importantly. Yeah. yeah. So,
2: not, so not surprising that there was already a settlement at the place you would obviously build a settlement. Mm-hmm.
1: I've got a quote here from a a book, Great Explorers uh, Jacques Cartier. It's written by a guy called Adam Woog. On July 24th, at a spot called uh, Pentil Point, the French explorers set up a 30-foot wooden cross with a shield adorned with three French fleur-de-lis. And the cross was inscribed, Vive le Roy de France, or Long Live the King of France. The raising of the cross upset Donna and the chief made a long, angry speech pointing to the land all around us as if to say that the land was his and that we should not have planted the cross without his leave. Cartier tried to convince the Iroquois uh, chief that the cross was simply a navigational aid for future explorers. That doesn't make
2: it better. (laughs)
1: Yeah, but Donna seems to have had his doubts because I guess he's a smart guy. And historian Leacock writes that the chief and his other Iroquois were wary with good reason because, quote, they rightly saw in the erection of the cross the advancing shadow of the rule of the white man. So it's like,
2: who are you and why have you put a massive cross on our land? Yeah, reasonable, uh, reasonable. uh, Nine
1: meter tall uh, wooden cross. It's not a subtle. No. Uh, Cartier then further enraged the chief when he uh, lured him and his two sons onto a ship and then attempted to kidnap all three of them. Yeah, this is a very Captain uh, Cook-esque, uh, which we, we, we talked about in, in a couple of previous episodes. Um, eventually, Donacona was able to negotiate for his own freedom. Uh, but for some reason, uh, I, Cartier may have been very charming. Uh, he allowed Cartier to return to France with his two sons. Oh. Uh, and Cartier apparently promised to return next year with both of them. And there was a big feast before Cartier and his party uh, departed, not having found any gold but certainly, having uh, explored plenty of the, the the local area,
2: I I do think um, like sending your children to your rivals and enemies' tribes is a thing. Or oh in, yeah, in, in Iroquois culture, I think it comes up in, in later situations. So like maybe this was a, a kind of a negotiation tactic. It it's that
3: a, wasn't. It's a thing in lots of cultures. Completely I mean, out of keeping with the, the Mongols did similar. You yeah, know, it was Europeans did a similar thing in Ireland. Yeah,
2: so maybe not that crazy a choice, but. Ugh, I w- Maybe not, um, but th- th- I this
1: guy has, has yeah, has, has shown himself to be a little bit difficult I, to trust. I,
3: I think the crazy choice was, was trying to steal the people. Uh,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: Let's focus on that guy.
1: <laughs> so back in France, Donacona's sons were presented to the king uh, and they learned rudimentary French and European ways of life. And so they would be able to act as interpreters on their visit back to France. And Cartier did, in fact, return to France uh, on a second voyage, uh, May 19th of the following year with three ships, 110 men, so much bigger expedition this time, and his two captives. However, many of the men uh, he brought had recently been released from prison in France, Uh uh, specifically to accompany him. The Sons of Donacona told Cartier that the the water route west uh, from the Gasp Peninsula was the way to what they called Canada. And Cartier's mention of this in his logbook on August 13th, 1535, is the first known written record of that word. And Mm -hmm. Cartier uh, took it to mean the land all around them, although it later became clear that this was simply the uh, Iroquois word for village. Oh. So, so that's wow. where uh, the name of the entire country comes from. My money was on
3: hello, but you
2: know. yeah, <laughs> take that cross down. So you're saying this whole country is called Tiny Village? How beautiful! Yeah, no, exactly. Just that small group of houses.
1: Yeah. So. Uh, Reaching the St. Lawrence, he sailed upriver for the first time, reached the uh, Iroquois cap- uh, capital of Staticona, and Cartier made the decision to winter there. And in November 1535, his ships were frozen at the mouth of the St. Charles River oh. under the Rock of Quebec. And reports indicated that the ice was over 1.8 metres thick on the river with snow four feet deep ashore. And during that winter, there was a very a scurvy outbreak among both the uh, Iroquois and uh, Cartier's men. Up to twenty of Cartier's party died from the disease, and possibly twice as many of the natives.
2: Is is this is this the time that the the natives made them a vitamin rich broth to try and keep them alive? I believe the so. Yeah, they they, yeah.
1: they 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 made some kind of a tea or broth. Yeah, from uh, yeah. from flowers oh, wow. uh, or or some kind of plant, uh, l- local plant, which which did help. But I, I imagine uh, the Europeans are probably fairly skeptical of that.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's the classic error of trying to you know help help white people invading yeah. Europeans exactly survive the winter is never never pays off
1: mm. at the end of that winter one of Cartier's ships was abandoned and would be left undiscovered for more than 300 oh, wow. years uh, oh, not cool. being found until the mid 1800s uh, and relations between the two sides after that winter had had soured somewhat Donnacona knew through his sons that Cartier was not being entirely truthful to him surprise surprise and uh, Cartier senses something was amiss once again invited Donnacona and his sons aboard where he again detained them, uh, fool me once, etc., cetera, um, and left uh, back for France shortly after. And in July 1536, after about 14 months away, he returned to France and had discovered much, but the route to Asia was still blocked, and he'd failed again to gather any significant riches. But he has a couple more people to show off now. There was a pretty large gap then between his second and third voyages as the French went to war with Spain, and Donnacona seemingly was quite well treated in France, uh, but he did die in 1539, awaiting a return to his homeland. I'm not sure exactly what age he was right. at that point, but um, yeah, he never made it back to Statacona. And in October 1540, Cartier finally received a formal commission concerning a third voyage. Money was set aside to equip eight ships this time and prepare hundreds of people for the trip. And th- this voyage's main goal was to create a permanent uh, settlement. Uh, so he's, he, he leaves in 1541 and the passage to Asia is all but forgotten. His instructions are to create a colony uh, that will last in, in this well, there area. Is a, there's, a big,
2: there's a whole Canada in the way. Mm. There's, no, there's no way to Asia. <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, so he aims for Staticona initially, but is unsettled by the number of Iroquois uh, there. So he uh, begins to uh, found a, a different settlement at the the site of present-day Cap Rouge, uh, Quebec, with around 400 people or so, which would be known as Fort Charlesburg Royal. And uh, this area was merged with Quebec city in 2002. Okay. So uh, but it was is, it's pretty close. It's pretty close, but it was the first formal French settlement in North America. Huh. However, it was abandoned after just one year due to the harsh conditions over right. the, the, the coming winter. Right, so. And uh, Cartier later would take his leave uh, the following year as well, returning to France, having successfully gathered what he thought was a vast amount of wealth uh, however, upon returning to France, his trinkets were discovered to be merely quartz crystals and iron pyrite, <laughs> respectively. <laughs> it's gold. <laughs> yeah, which gave rise to a French expression as false as Canadian diamonds or faux comme wow. la diamants du Canada. Uh yeah, for my okay. French pronunciation there. But, um, presu- uh,
2: presumably that's where Cap Diamant got its name, is it? There, there's a big part, uh, it was part of Quebec City called Cap Diamant. I'm going to say diamond, yes. Diamond. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, leave
1: okay. um So, again, quoting from uh, Adam Woog's book, which I, I quoted from briefly earlier. Uh, in some ways, Cartier was a failure. He didn't succeed in finding the Northwest Passage, nor did he bring great riches, such as diamond or gold, back to France. He also didn't succeed in another of his goals, establishing a permanent settlement in Canada. Uh, yet, Cartier did accomplish a great deal. He was the first European to explore, describe, and map in detail the Gulf of St. Lawrence and a portion of the St. Lawrence River. And this vast waterway proved to be a major passage into the interior of Canada leading to the Great Lakes and other unexplored areas. And because of uh, his work, France was able to enter and build a vast colony in North America. Fair. Yeah. So information, I guess, uh, he he came back with information, uh, not not much else, but uh, that that information would prove invaluable for the next attempt. Uh, There was some fur trading that continued after that point, but uh, the next settlement attempt wouldn't occur for about another 60 years or so. And during that time, the Iroquois population was supplanted in this area, and the site of uh, Stadacona had been seemingly abandoned. And enter Samuel de Champlain, a French explorer and colonist, arrived in the region in 1608 with three ships and selected a site of modern-day Quebec City to build a fort atop Cap-de-Mont, making it easy to observe the comings and goings around the St. Lawrence River. Mm. And of the area, he would write, I could find no place more convenient or better suited than the point of Quebec, so-called by the savages, which was covered by nut trees, and the word Quebec is a Algonquin word meaning "where the river narrows." So that's uh, that's what the the city today is named after.
2: He's not very respectful of the uh, no, the, the First no.
1: Nations people, is he? No, that's that's a direct quote from him. But yeah, yeah that's that's that, that's what he said.
2: Um. And you you were saying that the Algonquin people had sort of moved in to fill the gap left by the Iroquois.
1: Somewhat, yes, yeah. but uh, they they apparently hadn't taken over the site of uh, Staticona, or, or certainly okay. not to, to the same extent. Well, uh, they won't now. <laughs> mm, I'll talk a little bit about uh, his his interactions with the First Nations people uh, later on, but it's yeah. I it's, think it's it, Champlain. It is quite interesting. Can so in you say that? But along with his men, he built a small wooden fort, naming it La Habitation, uh, to house up to twenty eight people, and apparently a a, a Basque settlement, uh, a number of Basque settlers nearby. Attempted to orchestrate a plot to have this guy killed, oh. uh, because they 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 were attempting to kind of colonize this area as well, uh, but Champlain, 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 Champlain. Uh, Sammy! Champlain, Champlain, <laughs> Champlain uh, discovered the plot and had the perpetrators hanged. Hmm. Uh, but even so, the first winter proved formidable, and twenty of his twenty-eight men died. Oh my! Formidable that's, winter.
2: That's not a good. That's not a good statistic
1: yeah winter is
2: proving a challenge for the french isn't
1: it yes yes it is so again this this was a a very popular fur trading spot but the you know and and was still frequented by fur traders who were uh, trading with uh, the locals in the area Mm. but this was the first attempt by you know for i suppose second concerted attempt by europeans to create a permanent uh overwintering spot here
2: I suppose fur trappers don't live in a city, do they? Mm. they
1: kind Not of their vibe. tend to come and go. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he had a very different strategy for helping his colony to survive. than Cartier, he would uh, help the natives and bond with them rather than fighting against them. Oh, and, uh, that's nice. Yeah, he, he formed alliances with the Algonquins and helped them in their own territorial struggles. Mm. And as historian Francis Parkman observed, Spanish civilization crushed the Indian, English civilization scorned and le- neglected him but French civilization embraced and cherished him, or at least uh, Champlain did in any case. Um, so, and those alliances were key to the success of the of the new colony, which soon began to flourish. Champlain would return to France a number of times over the coming years, but he returned to Quebec often, uh, becoming the governor in all but name. Uh, he returned in 1615 with four missionaries in order to f- uh, further religious life in the new colony. And again in 1620, and would spend the rest of his life focusing on the administration of the territory rather than exploration. And he uh, himself laid the first stone of Quebec City, uh, what would become, I think, the walls of Quebec City, on the 6th of May, 1624.
2: Okay, so so he's Mr. Quebec then.
1: Basically, yeah.
2: Monsieur Quebec.
1: Monsieur Quebec, yes. Uh, And uh, Cardinal Richelieu, back in France, uh, took a keen interest in his colony in 1627, the Company of New France, made up of about 100 associates who obtained a monopoly on the fur trade, allowing mm. them to fund the company's activities and, most importantly, bring some 4,000 men and women settlers to Canada over the next 15 years. However, the Cardinal would only allow Catholics to settle in the new colony, not Jews or Protestants. Uh, and those who signed up were offered big incentives, including three years of guaranteed food and lodging once they arrived in their new North American that, homes.
2: That is a distinction between english and french colonialism that i I did Mm. see mentioned some of the the sources i was reading that like the english almost used it as a way to get rid of their puritans non-conformist populations like oh you're a quaker have you heard of pennsylvania you love it there (laughs) you know you can do your pacifism over there (laughs) your filthy uh, pacifism or or it's like you amish people are being non-standard would you like to Go across the sea,
1: please. Would you like to not be here anymore? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: And even, I suppose, you know, that it was a way to get rid of Catholics as well. You know, like mm. Irish migration to America was encouraged to, you know, make Ireland a bit more conformist. A bit, a bit less Irish. It's, uh, yeah, where, where the French are more like, no, it will be like France, where everyone is Catholic. Yeah. And they were having huge problems with Protestantism in France. So they heavily oppressed the Huguenots. Mm. oppressed them to death uh, from memory yeah and and some were able to get refuge in like england and, and the netherlands and stuff but france was much more clear on what french culture was and didn't want to export anyone else which yeah, is a, i mean you, you'll see it in the character of quebec as it develops very catholic from from, from together, I mean,
3: w- weirdly, it's the same as the Fran- France's approach in, in other instances, you know, New Caledonia and and even today, whereby you know, France mm. doesn't have we did have, talk about that, yeah, France doesn't have civilizing you know, the savages and all that sort of stuff. Well, yes. I mean,
2: what do they call it? The, the, the civilizing mission, or that they have some word mm. for it,
3: but but it's also kind of treating places that are, you know, obviously geographically not France as France. But like a, like a Saint Pierre and Miquelon, where yeah. off the coast of Newfoundland, where they use the euro because it's France. Yeah, yeah,
1: bizarre. Yes, yeah. it's like you know you know what would make this place better is if it were France. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Quebec City is, as we mentioned at the at the top, one of the oldest European settlements in North America, mm. and is uh, the only fortified city north of Mexico whose walls still exist to this day. I believe we have some uh, some traditional Wendat music which we might be able to insert here, Uh, so we'll be back just after this. Right, Joe. We got a nice, tasty uh, North American colony on our hands. What's uh, what's going to happen to it? I, I assume nothing good.
2: <laughs> I mean, lots of religion and, and, and several wars uh, and Great. occasional forays with the English. Look, like occasional, uh, frequent forays with the <laughs> English. So, you know, the English kind of thought that North America should be theirs. I think it's fair. How unlike them. fair point of view. There were a few other pretenders. You know, the Dutch had. New Amsterdam and the Spanish had claimed a lot of America just on the basis that it was inland from some ports they had, oh, um, Alta
3: California, yeah,
2: yeah, and the English were kind of liked the maritime bits because they were a seafaring nation, so they were bound to put up against um, New France, this this big colony that was, I suppose, pretending or had had, had aspirations <clears throat> to stretch from. Quebec all the way
1: down to Maine I suppose England and A- France A- and going out you know mm. that, that sounds beyond belief Joe absolutely can't imagine it so
2: um, yeah so, uh, so those are kind of the, the two things that characterise the next century is, is various religious orders moving in and various intercolonial wars so the first one I'm going to mention is that uh, when war broke out between England and France, the, called the Anglo-French War, not very informatively, uh, <laughs> one of many. The uh, Kirk, the Kirk brothers, K I or K E, who were actually born in France, they were born in Dieppe in Normandy, uh, sons of an of an English trader, but they were loyal to England. Um, they were tasked by King Charles the First. To stage raids in New France as part of this this war, so it wasn't really a this wasn't really a colonial war per se, but there was a colonial theater, but it was more of a war between England and France proper. The Kirk brothers demanded that Champlain surrender Quebec. Uh, upon his refusal, they captured uh, the French supply fleet of of Gaspe, and uh, so starve Quebec into a bloodless event called the surrender of Quebec. Okay. 1629 to 32, there was a brief English occupation by uh, the Kirk brothers. They got in on the fur trade pretty quickly, that being the main economic activity of, of Quebec City. And ultimately, the, the restoration of of the city to France was decided in, in Europe. But it did take a long time for, uh, I think all of New France was occupied pretty much during this war. So again, there weren't that many French people. Yeah, su- assumedly, it's, it's kind of easy so, to
3: say that you're occupying all of it just by occupying the main kind of city, and it, let, let's assume we occupy everything else as well.
2: Yeah, there was nobody to say otherwise. Exactly. Uh, but even after there was the the Treaty of Saint Germain was signed at the end of the war, Charles I still wouldn't relent and give back in New France until Louis XIII, his brother-in-law, finally paid his wife's dowry. Okay. <laughs> so Charles had married Louis's sister, and there was meant to be. A financial aspect to that um alliance things had gone south uh in the interim and and war broke out, but the in the end he's like, You have to pay your sister's dowry, bro. Um <laughs> that was the, the cost of New France. You know, really whole countries being to the playthings of the rich. It's lovely. Luckily, that's all changed. Um so Sir David Kirk. Uh, one of the Kirk brothers, I think the eldest, he has the ignomious record of being the first European to sell an enslaved African person in New France. Oh my God. So that's uh, wonderful. England bringing its great traditions to to, uh, this part of the world. And it was a a 10-year-old boy who he had bought He sold to a a French settler. So that's grim. Uh, He'd go on to be the first governor of Newfoundland for a period. I think we actually did talk about him in our Newfoundland episode but it's a while ago so
3: a heck of a long time ago yeah in
2: 1640 the first uh, Hotel Dieu hospital was founded by the Augustine nuns who were also from Dieppe and just a a fun thing about the Kirk brothers they were burned in effigy in France um, when they took Quebec because the French were outraged that these French people Mm. were committing treason against France Mm. they didn't think they were French but the French populace did Um, well I'm glad they were hated in their own time yeah yeah that's, that's nice by somebody uh, for weird reasons So around this time uh, around 1665 there were 550 people living in 70 houses in the city one quarter of these people were members of religious orders wow that's quite a lot okay. so there were secular priests just to say like parish priests uh, there were jesuits ursuline nuns and the order running the the hotel Dieu.
3: um just, just an observation that's probably not good for population growth. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to population. There, there,
2: there, there's a solution to that coming. Oh no, um, that doesn't mm. sound good at all. I'm I'm very excited about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, by the standards of the time, it was a good, it was a good, good scheme, maybe. Okay. So religious affairs had been left for the first fifty years of New France, uh, basically to the Jesuits to kind of figure out, and now the Sulpicians were also moving in, and there was a bit of disarray between the two so the pope was convinced to appoint francois de laval as the first bishop of new france he was kind of a popular uh, character back back in paris or back back in france uh so in, in 1658 he was appointed uh, a bishop he ruffled quite a few feathers with the, the secular powers largely because his belief that taking advantage of first nations people wasn't great uh, string was him up, and his primary kind of policy obsession was banning the brandy for furs trade. So the French were selling oh. brandy to oh, no. the First Nations people in return. And ruining for fur them, I'm sure. Yeah. Alcoholism was becoming an issue. Right. You know, not unlike the open wars, you know, it's sort of you know, let's drug drug the people into submission. Yeah. Uh, so he was very against that and he um yeah, came up against the secular, the governors quite a lot who obviously wanted to chase the economic value of booze for beaver pelts. Um, right. Liquor for hats, you know, the, the classic trade. Uh, and just to, to say, I'm not going to say too much more about um, Bishop Laval, but he was made a saint by Pope Francis a few years ago. Okay. So he, he's considered quite saint holy Lavelle, then. and reasonably, reasonably on the good side of things. yeah oh. uh, so, yeah, one of one of the early North American saints. Around this time, the series of wars called variously the French Iroquois Wars or the Beaver Wars uh, led the frequent attacks on the colony, uh, so on New France generally and on Quebec City specifically, as two cultures battled for economic dominance of the St. Lawrence River. These were the Iroquois Confederation, led by the Mohawks, whose, whose traditional home is in uh, upstate New York, uh, but also the Oneida and the Seneca, and various other groups, and on the other side of this battle were the Algonquins and their French allies, and the uh, the Huron Wendat people who were Iroquoian speaking but not part of the Iroquois Confederation hmm. at this time. Uh, so the Mohawks and their allies had exhausted the beaver population of the Hudson River because of the insatiable appetite of Europeans for hats. You gotta feed all those religious orders. You make
3: it sound silly, Joe, when you say it like that. Detroit nature. Why? For hats? How many
2: hats did we need? The entire population of beavers in the Hudson River. <laughs> there had only been Europeans here for about a hundred years.
1: Yeah, probably less than a hundred years, yeah.
2: And this what this just wasn't a business before that. Yeah. Um, anyway. Consumerism, so Joe. The power of consumerism. They wanted to expand their their fur-trapping lands into kind of New France territory. Quebec City didn't want to abandon its Huron allies, who they were trading with, uh, they had relationships with already. After many raids on various cities in New France, including Quebec, they conceded to let them trade. But when the Iroquois arrived with their pelts, they were told, you have to sell them to the Huron people and we'll buy them from them, which was not well received. Mm. Um, There was various battles I'm not going to go into because very few of them happened in Quebec City and we're trying to keep this as focused as possible. Uh, The Huron fought back. They tried to make agreements with various tribes in the Confederacy to sort of, you know, divide the Confederacy against each other uh, because it was only a loose confederation of tribes. And both sides were pretty evenly matched, about 30,000 people on each side. Uh, In the 1650s, the Iroquois started directly attacking the French, thinking that might get them somewhere. And the Huron were broadly defeated during this time, dispersed or assimilated. And uh, one of the, the times that they were, uh, a group was, uh, was carried off by the Iroquois. There were various Jesuit missionaries with them who were considered martyrs because they were killed. By all them. right. So, so a few more uh, North American saints there. So under Chief Canaquis, they become very unified and they controlled an area basically from just north of the Virginia colony all the way up to the St. Lawrence River. Oh, Wow. That's huge. So uh, the frequent attacks on New France, terrified settlers, and they were pushing other tribes of uh, of Native Americans west out of their way. So there's people actually got you know displaced from around the Great Lakes, from around the Saint Lawrence, elsewhere because of this huge expansion of a, of an Iroquois nation, which is kind of not a bit of history you often hear about. In 1663, the uh, what did you call the company earlier, Luke?
1: I had it as the Company of a Hundred Associates. I think it was just the Company of New France, wasn't it? I think. The
2: company of New France. It had a few different names. Mm. But anyway, it uh, it decided it, it was done with all this noise, um, and surrendered new New France in its entirety to the king. Oh right. So King Louis the Fourteenth got a new directly administered territory, okay. uh, instituted, you know, military leaders and a governor, sent a hundred regular troops to defend uh, Quebec from the Iroquois. These were the first uniformed regiments in, for want of a better word, Canada. Right. So before that, there were just kind of some fur trappers with guns. Uh, And it becomes the capital of New France officially. Quebec City does. Uh, In 1665, uh, Lieutenant General de Tressy arrives in Quebec City with four companies of regular troops. Uh, And before long, troop strength rises to 1,300. So, Marquis de Tracy acted as governor for uh, all practical purposes and led several punitive raids into the Mohawk homelands in what is now New York State. Uh, They had lost their Dutch allies in New Amsterdam when uh, New Amsterdam was given to the British, became New York. Uh, That, that I think, came up in our Suriname episode. I think they more or less traded it for Suriname.
1: Yeah. Um, Good deal.
2: I mean, not for the Iroquois Confederacy. No. Um, (laughs) Because the, they'd been mostly getting their guns from the Dutch. So uh, the Tracy's troops destroyed villages and crops, insisted the Iroquois convert to Catholicism, accept Jesuit missionaries, and speak French. And this whole incident was devastating. So the Iroquois sued for peace. And that kind of put an end to the, to the Beaver Wars. So this brings me back to the question I, I raised earlier. What do Hillary Clinton, Madonna, and Angelina Jolie have in common with two-thirds of French Canadians? Are they female? Is that two-thirds of French Canadians? <laughs> I mean, women. You're, you're, you're definitely that word is relevant. So this is an, an article I came across completely by accident. Okay. Um, I think I was googling why were the English so mean about the French language in in, in Canada, which is ah. a, a later issue, and this came up. So um, two-thirds of French Canadians are descended from eight hundred women who arrived in New France in the 1660s okay. they were called the, les filles du roi the, the daughters of the king and it was a pretty attractive deal so I was saying most of the most of the colonists were obviously men because they were fur trappers or explorers or whatever um where the English colonists tended to be farmers they would come in families these were sort of more solitary um, young men's activities. And so there was a population problem. How do you develop agriculture in a place that's full of, you know, grizzled, loner fur trappers?
3: Yeah. Un- unwashed, uh, yeah.
2: The solution was to, uh, turn, give the opportunity to the, the, the lower class women of Paris who might be hired up for a bit of money, uh, to find a dowry and say that the king would pay their dowry if they went over to New France and picked a husband from among the various men who were on offer. Um, There was a kind of a speed dating system, matchmaking system, where the intendant of the colony, so the the governor, Jean Talon, and an Ursuline nun, Saint uh, Saint Marie of the Incarnation, she became a saint later. Hot, hot, um, hot. Would chaperone various dates as he sailed up the the St. Lawrence River, you start in Quebec, and if you didn't like any of the men in Quebec, you go to various other villages, and eventually, you'd end up in Montreal, and you kind of have to make a decision pretty wow. quickly. Um, and yeah, you got your dowry paid and a little uh, chest full of um household goods and trousseaus, and so on. And uh, you got a, a bonus kind of pension from the king if you had 10 children. So, um,
3: can, can, can you can you imagine the abject horror? of what it must have been like for these women coming in on a boat. And there's like yep. thousands of, of gross, unwashed men probably have taken their pants off in expectation. <laughs> just just like tumescent, uh, red from the waist down, because that's no. where all the blood is gone. No, there some, no, some of them are no, no. passing out. No, uh, Just, oh anyway, God.
2: It led to the
1: biggest baby boom
2: in Canadian history, where the population of New France doubled
1: right
2: oh boy okay and so as i say two-thirds of french canadians as a result are descended from these 800 women which is a pretty pretty good genetic uh, payoff mm. um there's a, a lot more than 800 french canadians and hillary clinton madonna and angelina jolie also are descended from some of these women uh due to i assume right. some distant french canadian ancestry um there you go uh, in 1668, the Huron-Wendak Ouron, community moved to the Quebec City area, to so the, the, the town of Lorette, which would eventually be enclosed by the city. And they now have two urban reservations called Wendake there. In 1686, the market square in the lower town was rechristened the Place Royale after a bust of Louis XIV was erected by uh, by Intendant de Champigny. and Many houses around the Place Royale, which is quite iconic. I think it's Features in a, in Catch Me If You Can, apparently. Um, you know, okay. the Caprio movie, Catch Me If You Can. Yep. They needed a French city for one of the scenes. They picked mm. Quebec because uh, this bit looks pretty French. So a lot of the houses rebuilt and there's a chapel there uh, which would get its name from the next event. So it's quite a remarkable name. I'm going to leave you hanging. In 1690, during King William's War, an Anglo-American force led by uh, Admiral William Phipps attempted to invade Quebec City. During the Battle of Quebec, he demanded that Governor Frontenac surrender. And uh, Frontenac's reply was that he had no answer, save from the mouths of my cannon. Oh, jeez! All That's, right. That's a good comeback. That's quite quite good, yeah. Full marks for one-liners. <laughs> uh, the fleet was heavily damaged by said cannon and limped back to Boston. Phipps was knighted. Um, Not for that, for recovering a sunken treasure ship off Haiti, which is much more fun. And he would actually be the first royal governor of Massachusetts, despite his failure in Quebec. So, New France exulted in its victory and survival. And on the 5th of November, the Té Deum was sung in Quebec in the chapel of a new church on the Place Royale, which would be named Notre-Dame de la Victoire, so Our Lady of Victory. Uh, So that's kind of cool. That's one of, you've you've probably, if you've Googled pictures of Quebec, you've seen this church. (laughs) And then my final um, interaction between uh, the English and the French was in 1711 when Admiral Hovenden Walker's Quebec expedition uh, sought to, again, conquer Quebec during Queen Anne's war. So wars just seem to be named after the king back then. It's a bit dull. Um, or Jenkins' ear. Yeah, I was looking forward to, something like, Jenkins' ear, but it's just King William, Queen Anne. Um so Walker's expedition failed when seven transports and one storeship were wrecked and some 850 soldiers were drowned in one of the worst naval disasters in British history. Uh, the colony, it's uh, so the French and their Indian allies. Again, you know, through all of this, these various wars, the, some of the native people have been completely allied with the French and often they've become Catholic, they speak a bit of French. Um, and that's an interesting feature of New France. Uh, so the whole colony had been on a war footing, aware of the impending expedition, but uh, when a ship came up the bay, it was actually a scout saying, guys, uh, they're not coming. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they're, they're all dead. Um, and the population was only about 8,000 by, by the mid-1700s. So after a few lucky escapes, the defences of Quebec were about to be well and truly tested in the French and Indian Wars in the 1750s and a, a this changed the trajectory of the colony forever, and I think Mark may pick up from here. Yes, okay. <laughs> I am glad to hear it's that called Mark suspense. Knows more It's mentioned any wars than I do.
3: It's it's what they do in showbiz. They just maintain a silence regardless of whatever the the, the situation calls for. <laughs> Abject, total silence.
2: A seamless uh, segue to use the French word. <laughs> All right, yeah. so
1: Mark, you want to tell us? Uh, what happened with the development of this colony?
2: The British are coming.
1: Uh, they they <laughs> decisively
3: are. Uh, basically, the British yeah. the British are here. Uh, the, the The Seven Years' War was is kind of different to all the other wars. Joe, you were saying how kind of previously there had been you know, a little bit of conflict in in North America, but really yeah. the wars had been Tip between kind of Britain and France. Um, I, but, I do uh, think French
2: and Indian Wars is a much better name.
3: Uh, yeah, it's a much yeah exactly. It's much
2: more uh, evocative than. Queen Anne.
3: This um, this is both tit and tat and and tut and tot. Uh, this is this is the whole kitten caboodle. This is uh, you know the the first kind of spring into into kind of close to total war, and it's it's mm. all over the world. And one of the theaters is is around Quebec. And
2: yeah, the year they 17th, do call it like the first the first real glo- probably global war, war exactly. Though.
1: I can't remember where we talked about it before, but we to- I remember we spoke previously about the casualty numbers in the Seven Years' War, mm. and it was horrific for yeah. the time. I think there was fighting the Caribbean,
3: uh, you know, all, all, mm. all over. Um, so, uh, in 1759, uh, we encounter a bona fide 80 Days all-star. It is uh, Louis Antoine de Bougainville. Ah, him again. Oh, great. He, he he is in he's in France at this stage.
2: This has been his season.
3: <laughs> he he travels to France to seek reinforcements because the Quebec City is is very aware that the British are coming, and he is told by the French government that with the house on fire, we are not going to save the stables, uh, which is Ooh. both really insulting Ouch. and not very helpful.
2: But a good one-liner. I mean, there's a lot of pithy one-liners. and, and
3: Very it's... snappy, pithy one-liner. And actually, just to, to say, take a pause, that a lot of my stuff is coming from A People's History of Quebec by uh, Jacques Lecourcier and Robin Philpott. So uh, any, yeah, any quotes book, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm providing here are coming from that book. Mm-hmm. So the existing French forces pull back to the stronghold of Quebec because it, it is a big, pointy rock, so it's quite easy to defend in many respects. The British Admiral Charles Saunders had 29 large Navy ships, 12 frigates, two things called galleots, which I'd never heard of before, and 80 cargo ships. And all in all, he had 1900 big bloody cannons pointing at Quebec, oh no. 8,500 troops and 13,500 sailors. So lots so and that, lots is of is British Is that more
2: coming. than the population of Quebec?
3: Well, the French had fifteen thousand troops in Quebec, so I, th- I think I'm not sure the population was at this stage, but certainly the military okay. population was, was was pretty robust at this stage. Yeah, well, they must, stage. they
2: must have really bolstered that because I, I think there were only a couple, like maybe eight or ten, nine thousand people here in peacetime.
3: We're we're well into the war at this stage, so yeah. they probably shipped out a lot of extra troops uh, because of all the conflict oh. in North America. Anyway, uh, the English army set up camp just downriver on the Ile d'Orléans. They told the locals on the island they had nothing to fear but if they took arms against them or helped the French quote they shall expect whatever cruelties that war can inflict upon them. It is easy to understand to what excesses the furore of a frantic soldier might take him. Only our orders can stop that. So creepy. creepy. So creepy. Such a gross thing. I do not like that. The Brits trained their cannons in Quebec and the city closed its gates on June 30th and were under the command of a man called General Louis-Joseph de Montcalm. Twelve days later, the British started the bombardment under General James Wolfe. They captured 200 women and children from a nearby village, many of whom had fled Quebec City uh, ahead of the, the conflict. And when they brought them back and freed them, Wolfe observed the path they took back to Quebec City, noting how the route allowed them to easily climb up to the Plains of Abraham to the south of the city. Seeing how they got to the Plains of Abraham was very useful information for the British. On the flip side, the British were subject to sporadic attacks from local tribes, which included the scalping of captured British soldiers. Wolfe decided to prohibit retaliatory scalping. So nice. Unless they captured any local tribesmen. So they were scalping local tribesmen, is the upshot of that. And they were sick of the resistance from the locals as well, so they marched up and down, burning people's homes and boats like Bilio. The British commander Wolfe was quite ill, apparently, during all this, uh, as it happened. So that was one of the reasons that they were kind of taking their time, they weren't kind of plunging into attacking Quebec. They were kind of holding back and, and doing, you know as much uh, planning, let's say, as, as as they could. The French on their side, expected the attack to come from Beauport to the north of Quebec, and as a result, uh, had not posted a very strong guard near the aforementioned plains of Abraham. As the next heading in my notes is the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, that was a big mistake. Uh, and 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 uh-oh oh no the cove that mr wolf landed his men at is now called wolfs cove oh no things are going oh, that, badly run that's Quebec not a good sign. It's not a good sign at all. Uh, Wolfe landed on the 13th of September, managing to prevent the alarm being raised by the guard post there. It took Montcalm 75 minutes to move his army from the wrong position that he had them in to the correct one, by which point the British had established themselves in numbers on the plains.
2: He needs to be more Mont um, unrelaxed. M- mont <laughs>
3: rapide. Uh, yeah. Mont uh, uh, agitated.
2: Mont agité. <laughs> yeah, Nice.
3: Seemingly, the French were exactly the wrong amount of hesitant. They took ages to move to the correct battlefield, but once they did, they then did not wait for reinforcements that would have allowed them to flank the British. Oh. British had skillfully, deftly positioned themselves in a way cutting off their own retreat. Quebec historian Guy Frego. Proposed that the battle be called the Day of Mistakes and suggested Wolfe's pale victory resulted from the fact that Montcalm made more mistakes than he. The battle itself, uh, unfortunately, is a bit of a damp squib uh, as compared to the name. It was over in about 30 minutes. The wealthy people of Quebec uh, saw the battle and were not really feeling very fight to the last man about all this and much more stereotypically <laughs> surrendery in French. So, Quebec City <laughs> became uh, British on September the eighteenth, on seventeen fifty
2: nine. You've been living in the UK too long, Mark. You're gonna get us angry, man. Yeah.
1: If you if you win on this this battle, like uh, the the day of mistakes, you you know, even even the victor must feel pretty bad about themselves to 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 have triumphed on the on the day of mistakes. It's uh... yeah.
2: You got a shiny new city. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and maybe it's oh, yeah.
1: helpful that he's, he's very far away from
3: France. He, he gets to tell the story. Uh, it's only <laughs> after the fact I might come out a little bit. The French then made a tactical retreat and Montcalm was mortally wounded during this. But they did manage to fight their way back to Quebec City and laid siege in 1760. On May the 9th, a ship flying the Union Jack sailed upriver, followed by several others parking their guns off of the coast of the city. And the French retreated to Montreal and New France capitulated by September 1760. Wow. Yeah. It's it's kind of over, done basically, pretty much. Uh you know France as a as a going concern in this area. So the British took over, but they didn't really have kind of formal ceding, legal ceding of the land to them. Who cares about that though? Well, I mean, yes, they 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 own it, they run it, but they're, they're kind of going softly, softly because, you know, they, they don't quite have all the legalities in place that they would like to. Uh, the British prevented right. their soldiers from insulting the Canadians for their dress, language, or quote by uncharitable reflections on the errors of that mistaken religion which they unhappily profess. <laughs> oh, <laughs> ouch. Yeah. <laughs> I will not insult <laughs> your stupid religion, you stupid dork. <laughs> uh,
2: anyway. That does sound like a, yeah, a, british colonial opinion Mm. Mm. right
3: yeah
1: try not to insult these plebs on their stupid religion Uh. like
2: don't don't insult these idiots for their terrible choices
3: yeah Mm. male religious orders were eventually disbanded but orders of nuns were allowed to continue but also it took them six years to get to replace the main bishop of quebec city uh once the previous one died in 1760 so it was a bit of a you know go slow in catholicism generally uh, some mm. Acadians had fled to Quebec City, and one day, event- inevitably, we will do Acadia. Have we Have um, we
1: talked about to. Acadians
3: yet? We because have, I, I think, briefly. No, it's kind of uh, it's
2: kind of around Maine, right? Where which was part mm. of France. It was a
3: colony. wasn't treated very well by the British,
2: and a lot of them ended up being Cajuns when they fled yep. to Louisiana. New Orleans. So that's where that name comes from.
3: Anyway, so um, they weren't considered Canadian or, you know, French-Canadian, let's say, and all slaves continue to be slaves. So the British were really kind of, you know, not, being not really... Being Yeah, being very, very British, the whole thing. <laughs> so eventually the legal status was granted, 1763, the Treaty of Paris, bringing an end to the Seven Years' War formally. And Quebec is now formally actually British. But okay. it's filled with French people, which is challenging. Uh-huh. Um, French citizens were given 18 months to leave, or they could stay if they wished, but on, on British terms. 1766, there were about 600 British and a few Irish. had
2: like leave to remain. No,
3: yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. don't, do, do not, please, please don't. Uh, ah. So there's, there's 600 British and 90,000 French. And, and, wow. and that, that also includes some kind of indigenous people in the province.
2: Uh, and, and Irish people.
3: and and a f- And a few Irish as well.
2: But I, I did just see about the Irish like a lot of the Irish there came via France like a lot of Irish aristocracy would fight in French armies because they were Catholic and so on oh I mean and didn't they like the British yeah. sometimes settled there and they would end up in New France that way
1: I, I imagine how you know disappointed you would be if you were an Irish person who went to France to fight for France and then moved all the way across the Atlantic <laughs> Uh, to new france only to be taken over by the british
2: <laughs> but it's fine religion that we foolishly chosen <laughs> mm. um,
3: anyway so 1774 uh, the quebec act is passed expanding out the territory massively to the north in part to head off claims from a group of 13 states to the south who were about to become united states of a fashion Uh, yeah yeah yeah, indeed Uh, Canada was in fact invited to join as a 14th state but uh, didn't fancy it perhaps in part because they were referred to uh, uh, quote you are a small people by the thirteen states, oh. and there was also uh, lots of threats laced in there as well uh, about joining or else, basically.
2: And when you say Canada in this this period, you mean you mean essentially what is now the province of Quebec? Maybe
3: a bit more into kind of modern day Ontario, I think. As yeah, well at this stage. yeah, yeah,
2: but not not like all the way to the west coast and not, not the Yukon, no, no, not yeah, the, the
1: the British bit at this stage. I I don't think much of their invitation skills, you know, like. Would you like to join us, small people? You're a small people, but you can you can join our our, our club if you'd like. You are <laughs> very weak,
3: and uh, we would advise you to... Uh, it would be a good idea for you. So, um, anyway, the US tried to make good on their threats and sent an army under none other than Benedict Arnold to conquer Quebec City. Mm. But his army was terribly diseased and weakened by the time they got there, uh, and were largely defeated by December 31st, 1775. They lay siege all the same, because... God loves a trier. And Quebec again had to wait for the river to thaw before almost 5,000 German mercenaries reinforced the city by boat. Why German mercenaries, huh. do you ask?
1: Yeah, why German mercenaries? Um,
3: well, because the British were a little bit worried about sending British troops to fight against British troops.
2: Because yeah. m- many regarded so this, the. This is during the, the American, the American War of, of Exactly. Revolutionary War, is it?
3: They, they, yeah they they felt that they were still brits at some levels so maybe there might yeah, be conflict okay. among their troops and so on and you know the, the british army very keen on fighting and killing french people people they might consider as, as some of their own a bit more challenging so it was german well, mercy, these guys respect.
1: are white and speak english we can't fight them send the germans in instead exactly
2: <gasps> so wow are, is does, does the river f- completely freeze can you cross the river in winter
3: so I again I, I said earlier I've been to Ottawa and that's a much it's a much smaller river but that does mm. freeze you can you can walk mm. out on that in the winter so w- when I went to Ottawa that time it was winter it was like it was around it was in New Year's um, I um, came out of the airport in like a little jacket it was not smart I could feel the cold coming up through my shoes and into my shins I could feel ice crystals in my lungs. It was about minus ten to minus nice. twenty. It's it's serious cold. It is no messing around cold. Uh, and yeah, Quebec Quebec's going to be the same as that. I would say. Yes,
1: I uh, just I just googled it and it says uh, yes, yeah. The the Saint Lawrence largely freezes wow. every winter. Wow.
2: That's not how I think of rivers. <clears throat> yeah, true. It's navigable west to east during the summer and north to south during the winter.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, so. Uh,
3: some, uh, some Canadians had welcomed this kind of potential possibility for a bit of a revolution against the British, if they fancied it. Uh, but now that the Brits had won again, uh, there was a cycling out of militia leaders who had either sided with the Americans openly or just weren't really as kind of, you know, British positive as the British would have liked When the U.S. finally won independence in 1783, 7000 loyalists left the U.S. for Quebec and were greeted by the authorities there, uh, in part because they felt this will be a nice make weight against all these tens of thousands of French people we have. So it'll slightly Mm. anglicize the the province and, and dilute the Frenchness of the place. Due to a desire to split the province of Quebec into two, in order to give British loyalists a political entity in which they could dominate, in 1791 the province was split into Upper Canada in the south and Lower Canada in the north. Confusing the
2: British love partitioning things.
3: Don't they? <laughs> oh, oh, we 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 have some other we have some other uh, very choice bits coming up as well. Uh, a bit of marching, Wait, a bit of lovely oh marching. No. Yes, indeed.
1: Did you say lower Canada in the north?
3: Lower Canada in the north, yes, because lower on the river, uh, I think is the idea. Uh, Right, okay. It's upside down. It is Um, upside down. Yeah. Um, So Quebec City was in lower Canada, as in what we would call today Quebec, uh, that
2: explains so much about the things i was getting confused about when i was reading outside by section it's like why is low how is that low like where's the upper bit yeah in 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 just beneath the it. tundra yeah uh, it's just 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 beneath
3: it the upper bit is just okay. just just, just beneath, underneath underneath yeah. yeah perfect uh yeah so um so in quebec city it's where they established the 50 person parliament for uh uh lower canada i had to mentally make that myself uh, technically women had the vote due to the use of the word person the formation legislation but this would be legally rescinded in the 1800s while the english oh, were only us. about Damn it well yeah a nice, a nice, nice little a move
2: there. no no, but when we said people we didn't mean like woman people. we didn't mean women um, <laughs> we just didn't basically. think there were any
3: while the oh. english were only about 10 percent of the population they got about one third of the seats explained in part by the lack of a secret ballot. So you had to shout your vote out and many weren't too confident about kind of going against British Plots. candidates that way. Yeah,
1: And also you weren't allowed to shout it in, in uh, French. In French.
2: <laughs> uh, Jean-Louis. Sorry, there's nobody called that. John. Um, Lewis. L- Ludwig. Yeah. Lewis. <laughs> um, so uh, also all laws
3: had to be agreed with a council of lifelong Brit appointees and the British governor had veto also. So it was, you know, it's, it's British. It's not French. It's just filled yeah. with French people. Mm. So It's
2: so weird that they've colonized a French place yep. exactly like they would anywhere else. It's, it's kind of reassuring.
3: It's kind of their dream is to colonize yeah. France. This is <laughs> like them playing out their sick little fantasies. Um,
2: Agincourt again.
1: Yeah, yeah, when you said the, 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 the British authorities had veto power, I just imagine them just, just kind of, you know, Thumbs down mm. to anybody who, who speaks with even a vague French accent. <laughs> no, <Nope. laughs> no, no, thanks. Yep. Uh, none of your type up here.
3: So uh, there was all, all of this locking the French into this British way of doing things. And and the British were just kind of really frustrated with the French because they were French. They, they, they thought that kind of if they took it over, well, they're British now. So be British. Stop being so flipping French. And this is kind of, this is basically kind of politics for the next, you know, 50 years. In Europe, t- taking a step back, Napoleon is trying to blockade timber from getting to Britain to stifle their their growth of the, growth of their navy. But this pushed Sounds Britain cool. to begin buying timber from Canada, and Quebec City became a hub for timber coming from Ottawa, giving Canada a new economic focus away from the fur trade.
1: Huh. Thanks, Napoleon.
3: Uh, yeah, exactly. Who? So would have the thought. beavers, uh, a thousand beavers salute <laughs> him. Mm. So the Canadians stayed loyal to Britain despite uh, requests from Napoleon for them to switch sides, you know, you're really French, come over to my side kind of thing. And even though the French were still pretty aggrieved by the, the British way of running things uh, and marginalized by them, they, they stayed loyal. But at the same time, they set up the Parti Canadien to represent them in the assembly and were listening to the Catholic Church but at the same time, Catholic Church kind of come to a bit of a détente with the Brits because they had managed to kind of argue uh, the, the Catholic Church to the side, and the Catholic Church was very like you know respect the authorities, including us, please. Um, yeah. So uh, it, it it kept thing kept the lid on things basically. Uh, a few things to mention here: uh, there was a fever debate about the pros and cons of uniting uh, Upper and Lower Canada, where today that would be Quebec and Ontario. In 1831, the Quebec City population hit 27,100 people, although this probably went down in 1832 due to a massive cholera epidemic which killed 10,000 people across the province.
1: Yeah, it's big. That's what nearly a third of the population then.
3: Uh, Well, there's 10,000 people across the province. Um, Across the province, not so, in So yeah, okay. More like a 1 in 10, 1 in 20, something like that. Um, the loyalists, okay. um, so the British loyalists, also got worried about being swallowed up by all these foreign Frenchy types that they had invaded. And so they began a series of provocative marches in order to intimidate their opposition <laughs> for the only time wow, in history. Wow, that
1: doesn't sound familiar at <laughs> yeah, all. Exactly.
3: W-
2: were, were these orange marches? Uh,
3: I don't know. I mean... Because yeah. I know
2: that became a feature of Canadian history later, where you know there was kind of provocative Orange marches and provocative Saint Patrick's Day marches, and you know,
3: I th- I uh, think that was in a few cities across across kind of the the eastern North America, but 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 yeah, yeah, maybe is the answer. It, this, this might maybe, have been maybe that. Maybe that's a bit later. There was also yeah. a big boycott of British goods to deny uh, the British revenue. Uh, arrest warrants were issued for the leaders of the French Canadian uh, party and the army was sent into several locations where french canadians had started to erect barricades the british army generally easily overcame these french canadians because they're professional soldiers and despite a declaration of independence in 1838 you know the the whole revolution if you want to call it that was easily quashed there was 27 executions 180 deportations and in 1840 upper and lower canada were brought together into one province and the assembly moved from uh, Quebec City to Kingston, Ontario. So that's kind of the end of Quebec's uh, role as the, you know, formal uh, capital mm. of this area. Um, in 1840s, there was a flood of Irish immigration through Quebec City, uh, which would help bolster French-Canadian support because these were Irish Catholics coming from famine-wracked Ireland. And uh, that w- that had a bit of a sort of a, you know a downer on the Irish view of the British uh, a <laughs> yes. l- little bit left a,
1: um, left a sour taste in the mouth exactly
3: uh, so the the general picture here is that there was still lots of tensions uh, exacerbated um when canada decided to pay for some of the damage caused by the 1838 kind of mini kerfuffle bit i just described and uh, british loyalists felt that Payment. This is payment for rebellion, basically. This is kind of how they cast it. Even though you know th- there had already been kind of reparations paid—not reparations, but kind of you know, let's say re- repairment payments uh, 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 all around. But it also became a requirement to have a majority in both regions of Canada, so both in Quebec and Ontario, in order to govern. Which meant political instability was mm. was really common because you have, you have to kind of not just win a majority; you've got to win kind of. majorities. Mm. The idea of bringing together all British possessions in the region into a federation started to gain steam, but this was put Mm. on the back burner while Canada worried about keeping out of the US's civil war in the 1860s, and I assume that that is the very last we will hear of any crazy idea of bringing together British possessions in North America into one federalized system. Uh, Am I right on that assumption, guys?
1: Joe?
2: No. (laughs) No, you're not.
1: Before you answer that question, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back just after this. Hey listeners, just a very quick note here to say that with everything that's going on in the world right now, we've decided to donate the proceedings of this episode's Patreon takings to Red Cross. There are much more important things in podcasting going on right now, but hopefully this episode is providing some much needed distraction if you're being affected by any of those things. If you'd like to get involved on Patreon, remember to check out the link in the show notes for more info. And Tea Public are also running a sale at the moment, so if you missed the last one, it's a great time to order your very own 80 days merch and show off your exquisite taste in podcasts. But now, back to the show. All right, Joe, so did the British decide to consolidate more of their, their uh, various possessions in this part of the world?
2: I mean, it's, it's maybe a bit better question like, did the various possessions decide to be consolidated. It, it was kind of a process. Um, mm. So I've titled this section for myself, A Section with Far Too Many Quebec Conferences. Okay. I have at least okay. three Quebec Conferences, the second of which is called the First Quebec Conference. That's fun. Mm. Um, so the first of the Quebec Conferences was in 1846 and was a key moment in moving towards Confederation. So there was a conference called in October 1846 to carry on the work that had been done at Charlottetown earlier in the year, which is a, an earlier conference between various political leaders from Upper Canada, Lower Canada, Nova Scotia, New, New Brunswick, and and there may be other possessions I'm forgetting about that were British. So there was momentum towards uniting the, the British North American colonies into a country, John A. Macdonald and George Brown from what was called Canada West at the time. So I think that's kind of what used to be Upper Canada. Okay. They'd asked Governor General Lord Monk, who was uh, from Templemore, County Tipperary, a, a, okay. a tough from, from Tip. Uh, cool. He was the governor of, of the province of Canada upper and lower or east and west Canada. It's all very confusing. When they all get one name, it's a lot more straightforward. Mm. So he was asked to invite everyone to Quebec to have a big chat about confederating. Uh, These are a better confederation than the one happening in in the the south, um, if you will. So among the meeting included the members from Canada East, which is Quebec region. Uh, Those would be Georges Etienne Cartier, who had been deported after that kerfuffle, uh, the Lower Canada Revolution. The Maritime Provinces were, in, were also included. So that's Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and I, I, I think PEI. Newfoundland was invited to send observers because they hadn't been at the previous uh, meetings. Um, and they, they think did the Newfoundland joined Canada
3: much later, much, much later after a referendum in 18 later, yeah. Was it 1946?
1: Yeah. yeah see our, our, our right Newfoundland episode for more on that, I guess.
2: Yeah. So they had observers, but they weren't they weren't part of the whole thing. The real dispute for these these men called the Fathers of, the, of Confederation was the question of having a unitary central government or having protection of provincial rights. And so. You can mm-hmm. guess where the French Canadians fell on that spectrum. Um, so the the Canada East, which is Quebec and the Maritime provinces, favoured having a, a more protection of provincial rights. Where Macdonald and and um, Brown, who were much more English and Scottish sounding mm-hmm. gentlemen, uh, they they were kind of looking to the south and kind of going, "If the U.S. had a better central government now, they wouldn't be having a civil mm-hmm. war problem, would they?"
1: and uh, wanted to avoid making that mistake. And you guys in Quebec are still speaking French. We told you to stop that decades ago. Shamefully, yeah.
2: <laughs> so a compromise was struck uh, at Quebec, at the Quebec conference, with a mixture of federal and regional governments, which is how Canada is set up today. Um, so you have par- a parliament, you know, a national parliament, and then local parliaments and prime ministers and so on. And 72 resolutions form- made at Quebec form the basis of a new constitution. After the London Conference in 1866, Queen Victoria assented to the creation of the Dominion of Canada, merging all of the Canadas together. Uh, so that's East and West Canada, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, with PEI and Newfoundland coming later. And they were all merged into a Dominion under Crown Sovereignty.
1: Ah, makes everything a lot so simpler. So that, that
2: conference was is a, is a big deal. Um, Cartier, uh, the, the guy who had been deported during the Rebellion earlier, he he was kind of... Him buying into this grand coalition was with McDonald's seems to have been key to like French Canadian support for Confederation. They were like, Well, if he is going for it, then it must be okay, kind of thing. Okay. The idea of this whole Confederation was to get rid of that deadlock where you needed majorities in every subdivision to make decisions and nothing was happening. Right. Uh, there were explicit protections for religious minorities brought in in education as part of the deal to get the French Canadians aboard. So, you know, Catholics in the Protestant-dominated areas got to control schools and Protestants and Catholic-dominated areas got to have their own schools rather than one sort of, you know, square peg, round hole situation. But no recognition for the French language or culture was involved in the creation of Canada. But the Civil Law Code, uh, which had been kept when the British took over Quebec, was left in place. It's been variously reformed, but it's, it's still... The legal system of the province of Quebec so it's much more like a French legal system than it is like the British common law system. Uh, in 1871, the British uh, departed from the citadel, which I don't know if we mentioned, but the, the the citadel that Quebec was built around the War of 1812, when the Americans and British were having a war. They built a big, pointy citadel with lots of, um, almost a star-shaped castle. Oh, those! The yeah, are, the Danes do have, those. have a good view. Yeah, so that was, uh, it didn't actually prove necessary for the War of 1812, which didn't concern uh, Canada, but they they built a good citadel, and the British were now handing it over to the Dominion of Canada, which was responsible for its own defence. It became a Canadian Armed Forces installation, and to this day the uh, 22e Regiment operate from there, so a French-language regiment. And it's also the official Royal Residence um, and occasional Governor-General's residence. Obviously, the Queen doesn't actually live there very much, uh, but if she wanted to, um, she could, She has a set of
1: keys. (laughs) She has a
2: set of keys. Uh, British immigrants during this time changed the demographics of Quebec City to less French-speaking, but only for a short while, as the Anglophones tended to move on elsewhere. Uh, So the pendulum shifted heavily back towards a Francophone city with a notable Irish minority. I think today it's like 90% of people's first language is French. So it's, it's kept that linguistic heritage. The late 1800s was an era of grand buildings in Quebec. Um, so the, the first Governor General of the Dominion of Canada, Lord Dufferin, was very taken with Quebec's history and wanted to restore it. He started with the Citadel and the old walls, keeping this walled city thing that is one of Quebec's claims to fame, being the only walled city north of Mexico City mm-hmm. on the continent. The Old Quebec funicular opened in 1879, which is a 64 metre, 45 degree vernicular linking the Hautefield and the so just The town is now forming in a way that has two parts, a kind of a higher up bit with the citadel and the cathedral and a kind of a lower down near the port bit of the city, which tends to be where the more common people lived in, in, the, in this era. And now they were linked. So that's good. Uh, in 1884, uh, the Legislative Assembly first met in a near-complete Parliament building, the Hôtel du Parlement, which is now the home of the National Assembly of Quebec. This impressive building was built by Eugène-Étienne Taché in a French Renaissance style rather than the British colonial style seen in much of the rest of Canada, so really making a statement there. Uh, it was marred by controversies and workers' strikes, which were suppressed by the army, so that's uh, less good. But the motto of Quebec to this day, "Je me souviens," was introduced in the facade of this building and would become the the motto of Quebec as a province. Uh, And it means, I mean, I I remember, but kind of harkens to like we have not forgotten our heritage. I think it's usually I remember
1: myself, "Je me souviens." I believe that's on on all the license plates today.
2: Yeah, Um, yeah. Um, Chateau Frontenac that. Uh, I oh know you didn't mention it. you are gonna cut that. Uh, Chateau Frontenac, a, a striking hotel, was built in 1893. It's very tall, standing up the promontory, so it really dominates the, the skyline. And it was the first of uh, the Canada Pacific Railways hotels uh, completed. So they built a series of kind of landmark hotels along the railway
1: line. It's, I was reading; it's uh, apparently the most photographed hotel in the world. Which I don't know how they calculate that, but. uh I guess maybe because it's in such a prominent position, maybe it just gets it gets yes, photographed a lot. any
2: photo in Quebec probably features yeah, it. Yeah. In
1: 1889,
2: there was a terrible rock slide where, um, after heavy rain, an overhanging piece of Cap Diamant, a piece of slate, fell, burying a hundred people in the crushed houses Whoa. on Champlain Street. When you said a piece of slate, people. I assumed
1: it was you know maybe a, the size of a of a big desk or something, but crushing no, hundred people. No, not a
2: huge slab of the mountain. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that wasn't the only such rock slide, but this one is particularly uh, particularly high casualty rate. In 1894, Frank Carell, the owner of the, the Quebec Daily Telegraph, conceived the first winter carnival. Didn't run every year and, uh, until the 1950s, but it's now a, a fixture. It's a very Quebec. famous,
1: yeah. It's a famous yeah. um, kind of tourist attraction in the city. I believe it, it's it's probably the biggest event on a tourist calendar of a year. So uh, yeah, as a, as a result of the, the slowdown in the timber trade and shipbuilding, uh, in the second half of the 19th century, the population of the city remained relatively stable. But then between 1861 and 1901, it was only around 14.7% increase, which is, is quite slow.
2: Compared to the rest of Canada, yeah. So the importance of Quebec City really mm. diminishes over this period. Yeah, so around 1900, we're hitting insane. about
1: 70,000 people or so.
2: So we're into the 20th century. Uh, the Plains of Abraham Park becomes the first historic site to be protected by the federal government. So that's the first uh, you know, national park in Canada. And that obviously is a lot more now. In 1917, the Quebec Bridge across the St. Lawrence River was completed. It's still the largest <laughs> cantilevered bridge in the world. Mm. So you don't need to walk on the ice anymore. Um, significant event in in 19 in around world war 1 I, I suppose was the conscription crisis yes uh, so french canadians opposed conscription which was being brought in towards the end of the war for similar reasons that it was opposed in other parts of the british empire they felt that they they wouldn't be able to have french garrison life in the army in the british army there wasn't really french units going to the war uh, there were tensions between the anglophone and francophone parts of canada so a lot of french Canadians weren't that into going off and <laughs> dying in uh, in Europe. In France. Um, in France, yeah. Well, uh, even though the French and the British were on the same side, there didn't seem to be all that much loyalty between Québécois and France mm. because they've not been French for quite a while. They just speak the language any more than Alabamans love England. Yep. Um, you know, it just isn't necessary to be pro-France The Easter riots that were part of this crisis took place in Quebec City, led to the ransacking of recruiting offices and some pro-conscription newspapers in the city. Uh, The Canadian army was deployed by Ottawa, by the Ottawa government, the the federal government, and they opened fire on this crowd. Oh my gosh. uh, Yeah, at least five people were killed, which doesn't sound like a lot, but this was the most violent opposition to kind of Quebecois nationalism but, if but it's also
3: so perverse you're in the middle of a war mm. you're trying to get yeah. from, recruit people to go shoot your enemy Fight war, yeah.
1: and you're shooting they them they hate you
3: so much you end up shooting them yeah
1: yeah uh, and you hope that'll uh, turn out exactly around. yeah i hope no, i have I convinced, convinced people you. to go to the front is a, shot a few your bullets great
2: several skys- skyscrapers uh, edifas were built in old quebec uh, in the 20s and 30s in an effort to modernize the city which seems a pity when it's so picturesque mm, yeah. Um, and then in World War II I don't have a lot to say there was more muted opposition to conscription still opposition but not um, you know the, the position of francophony in the army had improved so a lot of the res- resistance was was lowered but uh, Pierre Trudeau who's from Montreal but um, he, he's a, he was later Prime Minister of Canada mm. and was the father of Justin Trudeau the current Prime Minister mm. of Canada he was a minor figure in this movement as a young political upstart. But also,
3: I mean, like in in World War One, there, there was a French army in France you could go and join. Whereas in World yeah. War II, yeah. France was kind of gone, you know? It wasn't really the yeah. same scenario.
2: And then the only things I wanted to mention in World War II that seemed particularly Quebec City relevant were two more Quebec conferences. The first Quebec conference... Give it a rest, uh, guys. ...in 1943... Codename Quadrant, which was a secretive meeting between uh, uh, FDR and Churchill. So the leaders of the US and British state hosted by the Prime Minister, William Lyon Mackenzie King, uh, at the Citadel and at the Chateau Frontenac, where there are two suites named after the men now. But this is a very secretive meeting. Plans for Operation Overlord were trashed out here, along with other important decisions. So That's the D-Day landings uh, were Mm. sort of planned here in person. And a secret agreement on nuclear weapons was also signed, which included Canada, but, but Canada weren't at the meeting. There was a fun story where Sergeant Major Emile Couture, a 25-year-old soldier from Quebec City, was cleaning up the conference rooms. And he found a briefcase with um, Roosevelt Churchill written on it and a, a plaque. And he thought, oh, cool, this will be a fun keepsake. Oh, no. He brought it home and realized it contained the plans for Operation Overlord. Oh, my God.
1: Of course it did. <laughs> Jesus.
2: Uh, he kept dumb about it and brought it back and told people what he'd done and he was awarded a British Empire Medal for his right. 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 which is Which is nice. And uh, then at the second Quebec conference in September 1944 it was agreed uh, the Morgenthau plan to demilitarise Germany was agreed right. um, which is important and an agreement was made to drop an atomic bomb on Ooh, Japan. That's I good. Think, at least in principle. I'm not sure like the like, I'm not sure they approved a particular operation, mm-hmm. but it was kind of agreed that that would be part of the solution to ending the, the war in in mm-hmm. Japan. I, I have it yeah. in my
3: head. The catering must have been really good at these these conferences because they kept <laughs> like, you know what? That was a really good venue. Yeah, I had a good
2: time. Yeah, I really liked, liked that hotel. Like, after either. a long negotiation session. Yeah, exactly. A poutine is uh, you
1: know, that's what you want. It's exactly what you need. It's really
2: putting things in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, post World War II stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a little bit here on the significance of World War II. Uh, World War II was really a key factor in, in kind of knitting uh, Cana- uh, Canada, <laughs> Canada together <laughs> as, a, as a nation. Um, So like national pride and and, and confidence was was kind of boosted by the victory of the allies and Canada's status as as an independent country, which had only uh, been shakily established in 1919, was beyond doubt post 1945. And that's going to be important to some of the stuff I'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. One figure I'll mention here is uh, Maurice Duplessis, uh, who was 16th premier of Quebec from 1936 to 1939 and again from 1944 until his death in 1959. And in in broader Quebec politics, uh, he's he's a a very important figure. He rose to power after forming a new national conservative party, the Union Nationale. Uh, He's actually from not too far away, I think about an hour away from Quebec City. He was a staunch Catholic, strongly supported the church. And between 1946 and 1956, he massively increased the budget for Catholic schools uh, while budgets were slashed elsewhere. Was opposed to military conscription and canadian involvement in world war ii and uh was generally a, a fairly conservative guy
2: i i don't i don't know if this was specifically him but i i did see some kind of quite nasty stuff around the opposition to world war ii being a bit anti semitic mm. in 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 this kind of conservative movement it was like oh you know we have to go to war because of all these this this Jewish situation. Right. We didn't ask them. Did I did. I didn't. Which, I uh... didn't see any
1: of that myself. Now, but I know he was. He was. Um, okay. He was certainly strongly anti-communist as well. So maybe mm. that had something to do with it.
2: Yeah, as a, I don't know if it was him, but yeah, it definitely was a feature of some rallies and things that made people. For sure,
1: his time in power was uh, retrospectively called, or or is referred to sometimes today as the Great Darkness. Um, oh, each, which is not is not a legacy you want to leave as a as a politician.
2: Also, weird legacy to leave as the person who kept getting elected. Yeah, like,
1: yeah.
2: Uh, have a chat with your dad if you didn't. Like but it's it.
1: interesting because uh, his policies really shaped what would come next. There was a movement in in uh, Quebec politics called the the Quiet Revolution, mm. which I'll talk about a little bit later. But um, yeah, it was it was sort of I, I believe that's sort of seen today as kind of a almost like a backlash against against his his policies. But in in the 1950s, Quebec City itself began to increase uh, and the population began to expand uh, fairly rapidly, particularly in the suburbs. 1940 to 1954, we have a a massive increase also in the number of cars on the road, rising from 15,000 to 60,000 in in just around 15 years. And this situation combined with the increasing use of, of buses led to, the unfortunately, the disappearance of the electric trams or uh, Petit Chars, mm. as they were known by the locals, or Little Carts. Oh, um, Little Carts. Yeah. yeah. And uh, on May 26th, nice. 1948, the trams that travelled the streets of Quebec City were operated for the last time, and on the next day, uh, 140 buses took over the job of the trams, and I believe the trams were, were oh dismantled God, after that. Sad. Yep.
2: Hello, mm. uh, the, the, that There's a linguistic thing there that's interesting, like, in, in, in Quebecois French, they say char, for a car mm. instead of voiture in metropolitan mm. French, I assume because, uh, I mean, cars were invented after French, the, <laughs> after the French language, yeah. you know, after the, the two languages <clears throat> separated. Of, yeah, split, yeah. So, you know, what you call it, it's whatever you mm. want. Um, and a car is a perfectly good thing to call a, an automobile.
1: That's cool, but yeah, the so we have we have a growing middle class uh, of educated French Canadians who formed into this kind of neo-nationalist movement, redefined themselves as Quebecois, and began to make proposals for reforms uh, throughout the 1950s and rejected traditional French-Canadian nationalism and its antiquated portrayal of Francophones as a minority Roman Catholic and rural society. So they proposed the creation of a new, more modern, secular Quebec state run by and for the French-speaking majority. Hmm. Also to do a little bit of flag talk in the (laughs) nineteen fifty. We have the adoption of the, the official flag Balle of Quebec. De the, yeah, uh, the fleur-de-lis, or uh, the lily flowered, which is a, a blue background with a white cross with four white uh, fleur-de-lis on each of the quadrants. And that was, that was adopted on March 9th, 1950 and was the first provincial flag officially adopted in Canada and derives from the Bourbon-French flag, which had three mm. gold uh, fleur-de-lis on a uh, dark blue field. Yeah, it's 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 not a bad flag. It's it was, a solid flag. Yeah, yeah, in 2001, apparently the North American Vexillological Association ranked it as the third best flag uh, of all US and Canadian provinces after New Mexico, uh, which was first and Texas second. Mm. So, all right. hmm.
2: it, it it looks European in a way a lot of uh, I mean North it's American supposed American to, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It kind of looks like what I'd imagine the the English flag would be if the French had conquered mm. it. It's kind of the same shaped cross and they are kind of go, let's put fleur-de-lis yeah. on it just to make it real yeah. French. I can, I can
1: see that, yeah. So the Quiet Revolution, the Quebec Liberal Party cho- chose a guy called Jean Lesage as its leader in 1958 and he adopted a new political platform comprising elements from both the the neo-nationalists uh, who, I, who I spoke about and the neoliberal platforms as well. And... Uh, Following the death of Duplessis in 1959, Lesage and the Liberals formed a government with a slim majority and the Quiet Revolution kicked off. They lowered the voting age and began to rapidly expand the role of uh, the government in Quebec. And they demanded a, a greater share of federal, personal and corporate and estate taxes uh, to fund the new reforms. And these moves posed a serious political challenge to an already decentralized Canadian Federation. So. Uh, we're seeing again uh, kind of this movement towards Quebecois uh, independence, somewhat, um, and and you know the the federal government is gonna uh, is gonna obviously look at, at that with uh, some alarm. Suspicion. Yeah. Uh, in the early 1960s, uh, there were a number of dilapidated and abandoned buildings in the old city. But under the Quiet Revolution, there were a number of initiatives such as the creation of Historic Borough of Old Quebec in 1963 and the passing of legislation to promote the restoration of the Palace Royal in 1967, which breathed new life into the the, the center of the city. And these efforts bore fruit when the Historic Borough was added to UNESCO's prestigious list of World Heritage sites in 1985. Uh, In 1964, uh, Queen Elizabeth II uh, visited Quebec and that visit, which took place at a time of mounting nationalist fervor, was not particularly well received. <laughs> uh, and there were there were uh, a number of demonstrations which were brutally suppressed by the police, uh, in an yeah. incident that became known as Truncheon Saturday. <laughs> oh God. Uh, yeah. That tells a story.
2: Um, Clear and concise story. Yes. Yeah.
1: So and uh, qe Do later returned to Quebec City in 1987 to a, a much less hostile. Uh, reception. But uh, yeah, there were there were kind of left, uh, left-wing left and right-wing secessionist movements that emerged throughout the 1960s and into the 70s. And uh, they eventually coalesced around René Levesque, uh, his party, Parti Québécois, which was founded in 1968. And following defeats in the elections of 1970-1973, the PQ, promising referendum on secession was elected in November 1976 and that was obviously uh, you know a referendum (laughs) not to not to touch on Brexit again but uh, this this kind of uh, referendum was a very serious threat to national unity and so the Liberal government led by Elliot Trudeau or Pierre Elliot Trudeau uh, who you mentioned earlier Joe
2: who is from the province mm, of he is
1: he is uh, from Quebec yeah, and there's a French speaker mm. this, you know. he prepared himself for the provi- provincial referendum on secession that took place in 1980 May 1980 uh, and his no vote like uh, the, you know the vote to, to stay within uh, Canada mm. uh, garnered 60% of the of the electorate and the The Federalist forces led by Trudeau uh, won, and he immediately acted on his promise to renew the federation and strengthen the ties between Quebec and uh, the rest of the provinces of Canada. This resulted in the Canada Act of 1982, which was augmented by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and provided the country with a new constitution. The PQ, anyway, rejected the Parti Quebecois rejected the, the new constitution on the grounds that it diminished Quebec's power over language and education, and did away with Quebec's constitutional veto. However, secessionist voices uh, sort of faded for a, f- a few years at least uh, after this kind of major defeat.
2: Mark, as somebody who has been to more Canada than the mm. rest of us, did, do you know is is like French bilingualism in official things a nationwide like requirement? Yes,
3: or very very strongly. Uh, yeah, it it, it's, it it is it is like really noticeable when you go there. Uh, that's you know all all signs like every um thing you buy in the grocery store uh, actually it's weird because like the wrappers of things normally in let's say the eu or you know america have a standard format of a kind of a front and back but they, they kind of need to do french for everything so it's it's changes the format of how some kind of like groceries are packaged because you, you need to fit like oh, kind of okay. the fancy image and also then all the kind of, you know, the nutritional stuff in both French and English. So it means that kind of the, the product you would buy in Canada will actually kind of look quite different to what you get in, in the US sometimes. But yeah, it, it is, it is, yeah, it is, it is ironclad, I would say. It's very noticeable, yeah. And
2: does this come from this area, I wonder? Do, do we know? Um, I'm not sure.
3: I mean, there, there was, you know, there, there would have been a point in time, but I'm sure it was stuff like that is kind of what's helped to, to ease the secessionist. Yeah, exactly, forces. yeah. That like Canada
1: is is a truly mm. bilingual state in that sorry, you know, state and as a country in that way. Uh, in 1986, we have the flag of Quebec City, uh, which depicts a gold-colored ship on a blue field, surrounded by a white crenellated border, which represents the uh, city walls. And the ship is supposed to be uh, Samuel de Champlain's ship and as a, acts as a reminder of the city's founder. So that's that's not a bad flag either. Mm, I quite that's like nice. That one. Yep.
2: But if you put a ship inside the wall, it's not going to go in. <laughs> that's true. It's my only critique. It's like a swimming pool. Yeah.
1: Floating in a little pond. Yeah. Uh, Nineteen eighty five, we have the Shamrock Summit. Uh, I wasn't familiar with this, but it was it was the colloquial name given to the eighteenth uh, of March, nineteen eighty five meeting between Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney and U.S. President Ronald Reagan in Quebec City.
2: Oh, okay, because they're both
1: they're, they're both, both of Irish of Irish, mm-hmm. uh, Irish ancestry, yeah. And it's the day after Paddy's exactly. Day. Exactly. Uh, yep. Yeah, uh, okay. And the summit was capped apparently by a, a televised gala, which ended with Mulroney Reagan. And their wives singing when Irish eyes are smiling. Oh dear God! <laughs> sounds ho- horrifically cheesy, but uh, yeah, uh, that was that was it's a big a, thing. It's for a charming
2: team. waltz, only sung by you know the the diaspora.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Quebec's constitutional struggle with the federal government was renewed in 1987 when uh, Brian Mulroney, again, I, uh, who I mentioned, their Con- uh, conservative prime minister, negotiated a deal with the Quebec Liberal, Liberal government, uh, which resulted in. Uh, an agreement known as the Meech Lake Accord, which recognized Quebec as a distinct society and gave the government and legislature of Quebec the right to preserve and promote its e- uniqueness. Mm. Although this was initially a broadly popular amendment to Canada's constitution, opponents included former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, uh, feminist activists and indigenous groups who raised concerns about the lack of citizen involvement in the accord and its uh, future effects on Canadian federalism. And ultimately, the Meech Lake Accord was not ratified by all ten provinces within the required three year limit, uh, primarily because of opposition in Manitoba and Newfoundland. And uh, partly because of the failure of that accord, the Bloc Québécois was formed, which is a, a federal political party in Canada devoted to Quebec nationalism and the promotion of Quebec sovereignty. So, so previous parties would have, as I understand it, would have operated within Quebec itself. Uh, but this is a oh, a, a federal okay. party that, that will run candidates all across Canada.
2: And importantly, sit in, in the... In
1: the Canadian federal parliament, yeah. Parliament. Mm. Yeah. And the party seeks to create the conditions necessary for the political secession of Quebec from Canada and campaigns actively only within the province during federal elections. Um, hmm. And it had been described as a social democratic and separatist or sovereignist movement. And... Uh, the rise of this movement re- resulted in another se- uh, secession referendum in 1995. Voting took place on the 30th of October and featured the largest voter turnout in Quebec history, a turnout of 93.5%. And Quebec City leaned quite heavily towards the yes side, uh, so voting towards uh, seceding from Canada, while Montreal was the opposite. And the no option won the day by just f- over 50,000 votes, or 50.58%. <laughs> So very very close.
2: That is slim. Mm. I'd say that that's remaining six point five percent of people are regretting <laughs> not going. I would
1: say so, yeah. Uh, and so at the, I just had a look uh, at the the latest elections, and the Bloc Québécois won seven point six percent of the national vote, winning thirty two seats, which was uh, the same outcome as twenty nineteen. Thirty two riding. I guess, yeah. So, isn't that, that what is their the constituencies are called? I, I, I guess. They're called riding. Um, <laughs> That's nice. And uh, although their seat share has risen considerably over the past decade, they just won uh, they won just four seats in 2011 and just two seats in 2014. Uh, but they are currently third in terms of seat count. And they have uh, strong informal ties to the Parti Quebecois or PQ, but the two are not actually organizationally formally linked. Hmm. And just to say, in 2008, the city celebrated its 400th anniversary and was gifted funds for festivities and construction projects by provincial and federal governments, as well as a number of other entities, including foreign countries. So, Very nice. I'm sure France, France uh, threw some money their way as well.
2: That that does make sense. Mm. So it's, it's their fault. <laughs> yeah.
1: So that's it. That, that brings that's us up lot. pretty much to the modern day. C'est tout. Hmm? <laughs> He's saying things in French, Luke. I
3: understand ah, yes, your confusion,
1: which I don't understand. Yeah,
3: <laughs> I'm not French.
2: What the hell?
1: Exactly. I feel like one of those British administrators. <laughs> what, what, what's this guy saying? What's he talking about?
2: Uh, can, can I can I speak a little bit about um, Quebecois French? Sure, go for it. Briefly, mm. just now that we're into the sort of the the, the, the grab yeah. bag of the yeah. end of the episode, for sure. Um, like. There are some wonderful videos on YouTube. You can watch people comparing the two, but they, they basically are two versions of French that, that evolved and developed differently from, I suppose, when was the Battle of the Plains of Abraham? Like 1759 Nine? onwards. Um, so you get this weird combination of sort of a more old-fashioned kind of French. so, so Metropolitan French and very formal Quebec French right. aren't so different, except for an accent. But the day-to-day spoken French of people from Quebec, from various parts of the province, but the city as well, have differences that make that make it difficult for French people necessarily to follow. Um, and some of that is that it, there are older regional forms of French that, you know, Norman and, and other coastal regions played a big part in the early colonization. So there's this kind of idioms and stuff that made it through that aren't in mainstream French French but there's also a a strange flip happened where lots of English words were incorporated early on Mm. into Quebecois French but now in the modern era they're quite resistant to English because it's political where France has gone the other way where early on they were quite against English incorporation but now you have you know le parking le weekend um, an email where in in the in Quebecois French you always say "un courriel" for an email, which is the, right. the French word, but you say "avoir du fun," Avoir du fun, fun which is just grammatically not how French works. Yeah. You know, it should be "samouze," reflexive to enjoy yourself. And There's like having some fun. I also quite like that uh, the words for boyfriend p- and girlfriend instead of being "petit" to me and is a chum for a boyfriend and blonde for All a right. girlfriend, cool. Which are quite weirdly sort of chum, very British, blonde, quite yeah. French. Mm. It's a bit weird. Um, there's also some First Nations words for flora and fauna, and rivers. Obviously, got into Québécois French. Um, an interesting distinction about the culture is that in France, you uh, you you get onto or off a a Bus or a train, you in using the same verb as you do to get onto a horse or a chariot, wherein in Quebecois French, you you embark mm. or disembark things yeah. like it's a boat because of the naval heritage. And there's a lot of stigma about Quebec French, you know, about being there's always this kind of like oh, you don't speak proper but French. The, the, the French are, about the it, French are uh,
3: absolutely which, flipping nuts about that, yeah, though. A bit like, they, about it. They, they have like an institute just kind of deciding what is true french and stuff like they're very rigid yes. on what is yeah. and what is not french and also to be fair to them french french sounds nicer it it, it has a bit more <laughs> mm. whereas uh quebecois is a bit more i don't know I... a bit more lumpen i would say Hersey. lumpen
2: yeah i i quite like it i think it sounds cool um i've, I've listened to some simpsons episodes like just Clips in English, Quebecois, French, French, French. I think Quebecois is much more fun.
1: Um, and I assume, and then I assume there... most people in uh, Canada speak Quebecois French uh, as opposed to French. I French. don't know about that actually, because
3: I think, I mean, if you look at the populations, mm. uh, Quebec is, is, I think, the second largest in population after Ontario. So it, it's, it's, mm. it's a good, good fact there. But you know, the people who are who are mm. learning French who aren't, you know, born to it, who aren't,
1: aren't Quebecois. Uh or you're, you know. In Vancouver yeah, or something. Yeah.
2: But they're learning they're learning standard Quebec French, which will still have features yeah. of Quebecois. It's much more like Metropolitan French than what you would learn from yes. your granny. But the, the, there was another and this is something we we can't leave out is swearing. Quebecois swearing is very specific, uh very religious. So in, in France swearing isn't particularly religious. You, you it's all, you know, uh, poop. Poop related. Poop can be Uh, sexual. Not for me, but for some. (laughs) The outsize role of Catholicism (laughs) in in Quebecois culture. There's a lot of quite old fashioned sounding swear words coming from religious terminology. So the famous one, which we'll have to bleep if we ever release this in Canada, uh, is is tabernacle, which is a tabernacle, just as a word, as a swear word in Quebecois French in France it's just why are you talking about the little box in the church Luke you're gonna to have to explain yeah. to Joe how, how uh, the internet
3: works uh, I feel uh, we're,
2: we're already yeah. too far in we can't locally beat that uh, and then we, chalice we don't, we don't post on the, on the on podcast anyway. across
1: the globe Joe <laughs> <laughs>
2: in, in, in a in a little letter and also uh, Jesus Marie Joseph is also a swear word Jesus Mary and exactly Joseph like, you know s- s- yeah. somebody's auntie in Ireland That so you know, it's, um, it's, in, it's interesting, it's specific, and I, I like it, and the pronunciation is kind of fun. It's a bit more old-fashioned. Okay. So uh, that's, that's my bit, though. We'll put a link to maybe some videos in the, the show notes so people can see what it sounds like if they like French.
1: I'm going to talk a little bit about the economy. So it's hard to get stats for the city itself, so most of these are for the, the province as opposed to for the city, but... If the province itself were a country, its economy apparently would be ranked the 33rd largest in the world, just behind Norway, which I thought oh, wow. was quite wow. impressive. Maybe,
2: maybe the block on something. Mm.
1: <laughs> and the economy of Quebec represents about 20% of the total GDP of Canada and hmm. has one of the highest growth rates of GDP in Canada. And one of the biggest uh, drivers of economic growth is actually maple syrup. <laughs> Jeez.
2: Well, m- most of the maple syrup comes from Quebec, yes. right? Yes. So
1: uh, Quebec yeah. province is the largest producer of maple syrup in the world, responsible for 70% of the, of the global uh, supply of wow. maple syrup. And Canadian exports of maple syrup in 2016 were worth around just shy of 500 million Canadian dollars, or around 360 Sorry, million uh, US dollars with Quebec uh, accounting for around 90% of that total. so We, we uh, buy it by the liter in my household. Yeah, it's big. By the liter. Big money. I
2: like it's nice, but I, I, I love that thing that you like pour it on ice. Yes, the taffy. In, to, just, to just make a, like a lollipop. Mm. That's kind of fun.
3: It's, uh, you, what you do is it, it's a concentrated boiled maple syrup and you pour it onto super cold ice and you roll a stick along the kind of the line of it and it creates a sort of an icy
2: lollipop. Nice. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Vaga Brothers on YouTube did like a culinary tour of Quebec, which is, quite, I, I'd say, worth the watch. And they, this whole one restaurant, the other is like all, everything's maple syrup in some fashion. Some
1: <laughs> Any Anything, Mark, do you want to talk about sports, possibly? Uh, yeah, br- briefly. I, I just have a quick
3: look because I, I was aware that Quebec City did not have an NHL team, which is a bit.
2: Oh, it, it got poached by... Denver or
3: something? Uh, Co- Colorado Avalanche. Denver, yeah. yeah. So bizarrely, um, and, and my, my wife's Canadian, so this is a very Canadian thing. Her cousin played for the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, her sure. cousin's an NHL player. Very, very normal thing for anybody to be. Uh, yeah, anyway, but uh, yeah. So um, the, apparently the team that was there got, as you say, poached. Uh, but they do have a sort of a, a, a lower league team called the Quebec Ramparts or Rempart, uh, Rempart de Quebec. Good name, good words. Mm. I find that Quebec teams are a bit, um, sorry, not Quebec, but uh, Canadian teams have have kind of rubbish names as far as hockey teams. Go. So you have the Montreal Canadiens and the Vancouver <laughs> Canucks, which is a nickname for Canadians. It's, it's so it's, neutral. It's so terribly yeah. neutral. <laughs> But uh, other uh, things to mention is just famous people. Norm Macdonald is Barney from from Quebec City, which I didn't Mm. know. He's a Saturday Night Live comedian who recently passed away. Uh, And also Glenn Ford, which was a name I was kind of aware of, but I didn't really know who he was. He was uh, Superman's human dad in the 1978 Superman movie. Uh, And he was also the star of uh, Gilda, Blackboard Jungle, various other things. And uh, very Hollywood. He was participant in four separate divorces. Mm. That's no judgment just i'm just impressed i haven't even managed one uh but uh, well, there you
2: go there's still time <laughs> um if you say something t- you know wrong about maple syrup it's, it's uh... well sure
3: uh, actually one, one other thing to mention you mentioned about the the, the quebec winter festival was it yeah yes um, yeah, when, yeah. I, when i when i mentioned quebec city to my wife she just replied cryptically bonhomme de neige uh, was what, what, what and it's this a kind of good, like
2: good man of snow
3: it it's well it's it's a, it's a french word for snowman but um oh. bonhomme de neige is the mascot for the festival ah. and he, he's got a weird like stay puffed mallow man thing from ghostbusters look and also like um if you know video games, a uh, Pit Boy from Fallout, he's got like a weird cutesy face and a big round kind of white belly. Yeah, kind of he's of creepy, a bit creepy. creepy way. Looking, very right. creepy. He's right. a, a quite creepy mascot. So watch out for Bonhomme de Neige. Um you
2: know <laughs> He's coming for you. Mm-hmm.
1: Denizen of the Dark. Right. all right um,
2: uh, no I, I I did look at the list of famous people from Quebec City and it was largely NHL players.
3: it's almost all NHL players yes
2: and actors and and musicians who operates exclusively in French and I've never heard of yeah. which is there's no comment on their skills but I can't put them into the context yeah, to say you can't say they're famous famous outside Quebec I don't know right. there is a vibrant TV movie and music industry in in french canadian world yeah but uh i don't know it and i don't think any of us do yeah
3: you're there's, there's famous and then there's quebec famous <laughs> and they are one of those things yeah. not both
1: yeah so you can find more episodes of the show at our uh, website 80dayspodcast.com and if you you know really hated our french pronunciation mine particularly uh then you can get in touch on social media you can find us on twitter facebook or instagram just search "80 Days" on any of those platforms. We should pop up. And if you liked the show, then you can submit a r- review on Apple Podcasts. That would really help us. If you didn't like the show, maybe just don't do that. That'd be great. Keep that to um, yourself.
2: Yeah, no, we 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 don't we don't want your honesty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can email Sounds us directly cheap.
1: with your feedback uh, to eighty days at gmail.com. Uh, mm,
2: or a postcard to uh, eighty dayspodcast at the citadel. Quebec City uh, should get to us when the Queen is in yeah. and uh, picks up our post exactly.
1: yeah. so that's it you can find more of the 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 links that we use and the, the, the references and the music that we use throughout this episode in our show notes which should be available in your podcast player or are also available on our website uh, that's where you can find the flag and maps and all that good stuff uh, which you might want to check out after listening to the show or possibly you've checked it out already while you're listening uh, that would have been handy for us to mention earlier um, <laughs> if you uh, really really like the show you can also support us on Patreon we're at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast mm-hmm. Canadian dollars accepted they are indeed I think we have a couple actually that are contributing towards our show in Canadian dollars oh so, we definitely do not so, after this episode so, uh, no. <laughs> no no they're,
2: they're, Well, the people I'm thinking of aren't from Quebec so I think we're we'll good yeah.
1: so uh, thanks very much to you, to you guys uh, particularly on this one so That's been it. Thanks very much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Au revoir.
0: Profonde, je me suis coulé à fond, la zige, zon, zon, fille en zigouzon, zigouzon. Fiau, 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 femme, 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 femme aussi, vi la botzin, botzin, la rigolée, ha oh, ha. Oh. Sans p'tit porte-clé, tourouillé, tourouillé, sans p'tit porte-clé, tourouillé, gamin. Oh. Sans p'tit porte-clé, tourouillé, tourouillé, sans p'tit porte-clé, tourouillé, gamin. Oh, oh. La fontaine est profonde, je me suis coulé à fond, la zigouzon, zigouzon. La fontaine est profonde, je me suis coulé à fond, la zigouzon, zigouzon. Paris, c'est lui porte, trois cavaliers barons, la zigouzon, zigouzon. Fiau, 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 femme, 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 femme aussi, vi la botzin, botzin, la rigolée, ha ha sport de tetouyer tourier sport gemah sans trois si vous